Chapter 27 of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter 27 The possession of wealth leads almost inevitably to its abuse. It is the chief, if not the only cause, of all the evils which desolate the world below. The thirst for gold is responsible for the most regrettable lapses into sin. Imagine a society in which there were neither rich, nor poor. What evils, afflictions, sorrows, disorders, catastrophes, disasters, tribulations, misfortunes, agonies, calamities, despair, desolation, and ruin would be unknown to man. It was the 25th of June. The church was in Edinburgh. The preacher was the Reverend Mr. Turkomel. His eloquent address had lasted for an hour, and the attention of his congregation gave no signs of failing. The gospel tells us, he continued, that blessed are the poor in spirit, a profound axiom that the ignorant and irreligious have in vain sought to misunderstand. It does not say that those who are poor of spirit, imbeciles in a word, but those who are poor in spirit, and despise those abominable riches which are the source of evil in modern society. The gospel tells us to despise wealth, and if unfortunately we are afflicted with a superfluity of wealth, if silver is stored in your treasure chests, if gold flows into you, if diamonds and precious stones cling to your necks, your arms, your fingers like an unhealthy eruption, if you are among those whom men call happy in this world, although I think you are thereby unhappy, I say to you, that your malady requires instant and energetic treatment, if you wish to be saved. And the preacher, continuing, told his hearers that their only chance of safety lay in the giving their riches over to destruction. He did not say, distribute your wealth among the poor, give to those who have none. No, what he preached was the destruction of this gold and these diamonds and title deeds and bonds and shares, either by burning them in the fire or casting them into the water. In short, the Reverend Mr. Turkomel would have no compromise with the habits and customs of the world in which he lived. In appearance, he was a man of about fifty, tall, thin, smooth-faced, with piercing eyes, and a voice as penetrating as that of a preaching friar. Throughout the city, he was well known. There were some who thought he was inspired. The people crowded to his sermons. Hearers, he had many. Proselytes, he had none. They listened, but they acted not. Among his listeners on this occasion were five strangers who knew nothing of English and would have known nothing of his discourse if a sixth stranger had not explained it to them. The six were, of course, Captain Antifer and Zimbuko, Ben Omar and Saouk, Tregomain and Jewel. We left them on the island in Mayumba Bay on the 28th of May. We meet them again here in Edinburgh, on the 25th of June. What has happened between these dates? After the discovery of the second document, all that could be done was to abandon the island to the chimpanzees, to avail themselves of the boat which had been attracted by the signals of the shipwrecked crew. Captain Antifer and his companions have returned along the shore, escorted by the chimpanzees, more demonstrative than ever, howling, growling, and grimacing, and every now and then assailing the explorers with volleys of stones. The camp was reached at last. A word or two from Saouk to Barrasso told him that the plot had failed. 
it was impossible to steal treasure from those who had no treasure to steal. The boat moored in a little creek near the camp, took on board all the survivors of the Port Alegre. Two hours later, she dropped anchor off the sandy spit on which stands Mayumba. Our travelers, without distinction of nationality, were hospitably received at a French factory. They at once set out arranging for their return to Luongo. Joining a party of Europeans on their way thither, they had neither to fear from the wild beasts or the natives. But the heat was almost unbearable. When they arrived, the bargeman said that he was reduced to a skeleton. It was an exaggeration, of course, but it was not far from the truth. Luckily, Captain Antifer and his companions did not have to remain at Lolongo very long. A Spanish steamer from San Paul de Luanda, bound for Marseille, happened to put in two days afterwards for repairs, which were effected in a day. Berths were booked on the steamer, with some of the money saved from the wreck, and on the 15th of June, Captain Antifer and his companions left the west coast of Africa, where they found two valuable diamonds, a new document, and a new disappointment. As to Captain Barrasso, Silk undertook to pay him later on, when he had got hold of the Pasha's millions, and the Portuguese had to be content with the promise. Joel made no attempt to argue with his uncle, although he fully expected that the campaign would end in some gigantic mystification. A change, however, began to come over the bargeman's opinion. Those two diamonds contained in the box on island number two had given him something to think about. If the Pasha, he said to himself, has made us a present of these two diamonds, why should we not find some more on island number three? And when he talked to Jewel in this way, Jewel would shrug his shoulders and say, Well, we shall see. We shall see. This was Antifer's opinion. As the third legatee, the possessor of the latitude of the third island, lived in Edinburgh, to Edinburgh he would go, and he had no intention of letting himself be outstripped in the race, thither by either Zambuco or Ben Omar, who knew the longitude, 15 degrees, 11 minutes east, which was to be communicated to Mr. Turkomel. He would not part company with them. They would go together to Edinburgh by the quickest possible way, and Mr. Turkomel would be visited by the whole of them. Of course, this resolve was not satisfactory to Sahuk. He was now in possession of the secret, and he would much rather have acted alone, found the man mentioned in the document, obtained a position of the third island, gone there, and dug up the riches of Kamalik Pasha. But he could not get away without awakening suspicion, and he knew that he was being watched by Jewel. Besides, the only way he can go was by Marseille, and as Antifar was going to Edinburgh by the shortest way, and in the shortest time, by traveling on the railways of France and England, so could not hope to get there before him. He had therefore to resign himself to the inevitable. Once matters had been cleared up with this Mr. Turkomel, perhaps the attempt, which had failed at Luongo and Muscat, might succeed in Edinburgh. The passage was fairly quick, as the steamer made no calls at the byports. It was rough, certainly, and of course Ben Omar was landed like a package on the quay of La Joliette. Jewel had written a long letter to Enoging. He told her all that had happened at Luongo. He informed her of the new campaign on which their uncle's obstinacy was sending them. And who could say where the caprice of the Pasha might send them in the future? He added that as far as he could see, Captain Antifer was quite equal to running about the world like a wandering Jew, and that he would not stop until he was raving mad, which would assuredly happen before all was over. Jewel had only just time to slip this letter into the post. 
Antifer was off in the fast train from Marseille to Paris, then by the express from Paris to Calais, then by boat to Dover, then from Dover to London, and then by the Flying Scotchman from London to Edinburgh. As soon as they had secured their rooms at Gibbs Royal Hotel, they started out in search of Mr. Turkomel, and to their great surprise, Mr. Turkomel turned out to be a minister. They found his address, and then found out that he was at the church, and to the church they went. Their intention was to introduce themselves to him when the sermon was over, to tell him their story. A man to whom they were bringing a million or so was not likely to complain at being intruded upon. At the same time, it all seemed rather strange. What connection could have existed between Kamalik Pasha and the Scottish minister? Antifer's father had saved the Egyptian's life. Well. Zimbuko had saved his riches. Well. Hence the feeling of gratitude he had shown towards these two. Were they to conclude that Mr. Turkomel possessed a similar right to recognition? Evidently. But under what peculiar circumstances could a minister have helped Kamalik Pasha in any way? It must be so, however, for this minister was the depository of the third latitude necessary for the discovery of the third island. But when the treasure seeker saw the minister in the pulpit, it was evident that some other explanation would have to be sought for. He could not have been more than twenty-two when Kamalik was thrown into prison at Cairo, by order of Mehemet Ali, and it was not likely that he could have rendered him any service before then. Was it his father, or his grandfather, or uncle, who had put the Egyptian under an obligation? However, it was of no importance. The point was that this minister possessed the precious latitude that before the day was out, they would know all about it. The sermon continued, the same thesis, with the same impassioned eloquence. An invitation to kings to throw their civil lists into the sea. An invitation to queens to throw their diamonds into the flames. An invitation to the rich to destroy every scrap of their wealth. Jules sat astounded, muttering to himself. Here is another complication. Decidedly, Uncle will have no chance with this man. Can this be the sort of man the Pasha knew? Is it from this excited minister that we are to ask the means of discovering a treasure? This man would be only too eager to destroy it, and if it ever fell into his hands. Here is an obstacle we never expected, an insurmountable obstacle, which will bring our proceedings to a close. We shall get a preemptory refusal, a refusal to which we cannot reply a refusal which will bring the reverend gentleman immense popularity. That will settle my uncle, and his mind will give way. Sibuko and he, and perhaps this Nazim, will do all they dare to get the secret of the minister. They are capable of everything. But if he keeps the secret? I do not know if, as he says, millions do not bring happiness, but running after those of the Egyptians certainly delayed mine. And if Mr. Turkomel refuses to cross this latitude with our longitude, which we have conquered at so much trouble, we can do nothing else than retire tranquilly to France, and... When God commands, we must obey, said the preacher at this moment. That is my opinion, thought Jewel, and my uncle will have to submit. But the sermon did not end, and there seemed no reason why it should not last until eternity. Antifer and the banker began to give visible marks of impatience. Sauk bit his mustache. The notary, so long as he was not on shipboard, did not worry himself about anything. Tregomain, with his mouth open, his head nodding, his ears pricked up, tried to catch a word here and there, which he vainly endeavored to translate. If, said Antifer, he only knew the news I am bringing him, this preacher would soon get out of his pulpit. 
Would he? asked Jewel, in a tone so singular that Antifer frowned at him in a terrible way. But all things must end in this world, even a Scottish sermon. It had become evident that Mr. Turkomel had reached his peroration. His delivery became more labored, his gestures more violent, his metaphors more audacious, his objurgations more menacing. One more blow against the fortune-holders, the possessors of the vile metal, with an injunction to throw it into the furnace of this world if they would avoid being hurled into that of the next, and then a supreme effort to the effect that when they were weighed in the balance, the weight of their gold would sink them to perdition. The sermon was over, and the preacher had suddenly disappeared. Captain Antifer, Zambuco, and Souk had intended to interview him as he came out of church. Would they have to wait until the morning? Were they to pass the night in the tortures of curiosity? No, they would rush to the central porch. Jewel and the notary and Tregomain followed them, but their endeavor was in vain. Evidently, Mr. Turkomel, to avoid an ovation, had escaped by a side door. To 17 North Bridge Street, said Captain Antifer. But, Uncle! Before he goes to bed, we must see him, said the banker. But, Mr. Zambuco... No remarks, if you please. There's only one thing. What is that? asked Antifer angrily. What he's been preaching about. And what has that to do with us? A good deal. You are making fun of us. I am quite serious, and I say that nothing could be more unfortunate for you. For me? Yes. Listen. And in a few words, Joel had explained what had been the purport of the sermon that all the millions in the world ought to be thrown into the sea. The banker was aghast, and so was Souk, although he pretended not to understand. As for Tregomain, he indulged in a huge grimace of disappointment. Antifer alone remained unshaken. In a tone of bitter irony, he remarked, Fool! The only people who preach like that are those who have not a halfpenny to lose. We've only got to talk about the millions that are coming, and you will see if this Turkmen will throw them into the sea. Evidently, this reply betrayed a profound knowledge of human nature. But it was decided to give up the idea of visiting this reverend gentleman that evening when the six travelers returned to Gibbs Royal Hotel. End of chapter 27